Welcome to the Strong for Performance podcast, where we share wisdom and practical tips to help you grow stronger in all areas of your life. I'm your host, Meredith Bell. I interview experts who offer real-world experiences that you can apply to your own journey. If you enjoy my podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate it on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome to the Strong for Performance podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Bell, and I am committed to bringing guests to you who will both challenge and inspire you. And my guest today will definitely do both of those things. And if you enjoy my podcast, please go to your favorite podcast platform and rate and review it. Thank you. And I wanted to state that my podcast is brought to you by my company. We are the publisher of books and software tools that help people improve communication in the workplace. And you can learn more about our offerings at growstrongleaders.com. Today, it is such a special occasion. I am thrilled to welcome as my guest, Nate Regier. Nate, welcome to my show. Meredith, it is a joy to be here. I've been really looking forward to this. Well, I have to, Nate, um, especially because I've read you know, two of your three books. I love what you have to say. I can't wait to dive in, but I want my audience to first know a little bit more about you and get the context for our conversation. Nate is the CEO and founding owner of Next Element Consulting. It's a global leadership firm dedicated, and I love this, to bringing compassion into the workplace. My personal feeling, and I think his clients would agree, is that he's absolutely brilliant in creating models that foster positive relationships and workplaces. And then he's so effective in teaching clients how to use them to transform their organizations. Nate is a former practicing psychologist, and he's an expert in areas like social emotional intelligence, interpersonal communication, and leadership. And as I mentioned, he's the author of three books. And today we're going to focus on his second book. I'm going to have him back to do justice to his third book too. But his second book is called Conflict Without Casualties. And I've got a copy of it right here. It's a field guide for leading with compassionate accountability. And we're going to be exploring what that term means and his model for that. I also want to mention that Nate is the host of a wonderful podcast called On Compassion with Dr. Nate. And I highly recommend that you listen to that. He brings on wonderful executive leaders who are practicing compassion in their workplace. And it's very inspiring. He also writes a weekly blog and contributes to multiple industry publications. So Nate, the first thing I want to do is tell us a little bit about your unique background, because you are one of the rare individuals that I've encountered who's been interested in this topic of compassion practically your whole life. Mm, yeah, yeah, I have. I think the seeds were planted early, early on in my life. I maybe didn't know what to call it, but um, I, I grew up the, the son of missionary parents in Africa, 
And so in the 70s and late 60s, 70s and 80s, I was in Africa with Mennonite parents. And I don't know if your listeners know what Mennonites are, but it's a denomination that focuses a lot on peace and nonviolence. And so we were in parts of the world that had a lot of strife. And um, in high school, I was in South Africa, Southern Africa during apartheid when Nelson Mandela was still in prison. And so there was a lot of conflict, a lot of strife and, and our I was brought up to always look for nonviolent solutions. But I think even early on, there was something inside of me that said, there's got to be a better way than just, just peace or just not, not resorting to violence or turning the other cheek. And I wanted more dynamic, active ways to engage with people. Um, and the older I got, the more I realized that conflict is with us. It's a natural part of our existence. So we need to find a way to do that. And uh, compassion really has emerged for me as the solution to that. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting to me, your definition or perception of conflict as being natural, you know, because so often people have a negative perception of it and want to avoid it or minimize it or anything, but you really recommend embracing it and actually using it as a positive. So, so just talk a little bit about how you came to perceive it that mm, way. Mm. Yeah. Well, first I just want to say that, that it's normal and it's everywhere that people have negative associations with conflict. I mean, why wouldn't we look around uh, when we see all the drama around us and all of this destruction and casualties that have come from conflict, it's easy to conclude that conflict is bad. You know, it's the enemy. It's the thing we want to avoid. Uh, and so, you know, if you Google, if you search conflict, Google will often, or any search engine will often pair it with other words to create phrases. And the most common things that come up are conflict management, conflict reduction, conflict mediation. All of those imply that conflict is the thing to be gotten rid of. It's the problem. But I, I just can't, I can't agree with that because of diversity. I think diversity is a natural part of the universe. It's a wonderful, beautiful thing. And whether you study, you know, evolutionary theory or natural systems or family systems, whatever, wherever you look, diversity is a beautiful thing and it leads to great outcomes. But here's the thing is if we're going to have diversity, we're going to have conflict. It's, it's just a natural part of difference. And so if diversity is beautiful and wonderful and purposeful, then conflict must also be. And so we define conflict as just the difference between what I want and what I'm expecting. That's it. Or what I'm experiencing. I want this. I'm experiencing that there's a gap, there's energy in that gap. And the real question is not whether there's a problem with that. The question is what will we do with that energy? Mm -hmm. To me, it's, it's like you're approaching it in a more neutral way. You're not associating judgment with it or, you know, assessing it as good or bad. It's, it just, it, here is where we are. And yeah. I think that that's a challenge for many people because they bring their past experiences, either with a specific individual or a specific situation yep. Yep. and are layering that in on their response to it. Yeah. Well, let's take, let's take electricity. Electricity is a very powerful force. And if you talk to an electrician, they, they have a very they have a great relationship with electricity. 
I've seen electricians be able to deal with wires that are live and hot. They know they can do this and not get shocked. I have a really bad association with electricity because I've gotten shocked, I've gotten burned, <laughs> you know, I've gotten hurt from it. And so electricity obviously isn't the problem. And when we know how to work with it, we can do amazing things. But again, I also might have a negative associations because I've seen it do damage and I've seen it be destructive uh, in the wrong hands or when used the wrong way. Well, there were a couple of words that really are the underlying theme in your book. And one of them I really want to delve into because every listener will relate to it. And it's the word drama <clears throat> that drew me in instantly Yeah, yeah. You know, because we've all experienced drama. So I would love for you to talk about, you know, how do you define drama and what are those right. three roles in the triangle that yeah. contribute to it? Well, I, First, I want to say th- I want to say thank you for for your kind words about the models that we developed, and, and I think for for a concept to be teachable and to really make a difference in the world, it has to be. We have to understand it. We have to be able to see it and have an agreement on what we're talking about. And so, drama was one of the first things we tackled to come up with what really is it. It's more than a pit in the stomach. It's more than what happens with teenagers, you know, at school. Even though, yeah, we call it drama. Um, but we were informed by a model called the drama triangle that was developed by Dr. Stephen Cartman, a wonderful framework um, that lays out three roles people play. When the chips are down and we're not managing conflict well, uh, we fall into one of three roles. Uh, we can either play the role of the victim, which is where we kind of assume we're the problem and we'll just take it and we'll just you know, keep quiet and compromise to keep the peace. Uh, or the persecutor. Some of us take the role of the persecutor and we go on the attack or we blame or we manipulate or we you know, abuse authority to try to get what we want. Uh, and then there's a third role, which is the role of the rescuer, which is the one that wants to just come in and fix everything without, without consent. We call these the non-consensual helpers. And whether, whether I'm playing the victim role, the persecutor role, or the, or the rescuer role, it's a role that I play. It's not who I am, but it's how I misuse conflict. And so we decided, so we worked really hard on this definition. And so our definition of drama is drama is what happens when we misuse the energy of conflict to struggle against ourselves or each other with or without awareness to feel justified about our negative behavior. That's a mouthful. And I'm happy to break it down if you want. It is. I would love for you to, because I think each element that you just said, it it has significance and is really important. And also while you're doing that address, whether it's common for someone to adopt one of those roles as their primary role, or do we tend to switch among them? Well, that's a great question, and um, I'll just I'll just answer that first. Yes, it is. We may have a role or roles that are most common for us, kind of our roles, but people can move around and people can switch, and sometimes that's what keeps it exciting, and that's what keeps us guessing. You know, when people switch roles, we never quite know what to expect from them, and that's part of kind of the power play um, and the and the chaos of the drama triangle. But what we've also discovered, and then we can talk about this more next time with, with my book about personality differences, is that personality is a huge um, influencer in how we do drama and what role people play. So um, we found that that's actually the strongest predictor of what role people play, what roles people play in drama. 
uh, coupled with what roles other people are playing, because, you know, they kind of play off each other. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's some dancing around and it, it's predictable. Once you know what to look for, it's pretty predictable what people do. Um, and uh, oh, the drum, the, the definition. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Explore so, that a little bit. The first part is it's a misusing the energy of conflict. So there's conflict. We've already established that's not the problem. It's energy. So it starts with misusing the energy. And the reason, the way we misuse it is we get into an adversarial relationship with ourselves or each other. And that just means that our goal is for there to be a winner and a loser. And maybe, the, maybe I'm gunning to be the loser by playing the victim role and saying, yeah, nobody ever loves me. I always mess things up. You know, see, there I go again, screwing things up. I should just be fired now. I'll go get my box. Um, or we might gun to be the winner and say, see, you never, you never show up on time. See, no matter what we do, you always mess it up. See, that's there. See, that's why we don't hire women. And you can see where this goes. Um, very, very justified kinds of, of, of attacking behaviors. But the goal is to be the winner or the loser. And the purpose of this whole thing is to feel justified. I think human, the, the, the worst of human nature is the need to feel justified. We want to be right. Mm -hmm. Be able to say, mm-hmm, see, I was right about myself or about you, and then have that self-fulfilling prophecy. So that's the second part is to feel justified. Well, what do we want to feel justified about? Well, it's not about the good things we do. It's about our negative behaviors. It's about those icky things we say and do and those attitudes we have towards people that we know aren't right. But somehow we sleep at night because we somehow justify why it's okay to do that. Mm. Um, and so all of these conditions, all of these things go together. We misuse conflict. We get into an adversarial relationship. We want to feel justified. And it's only about our negative behavior. And, you know, when you were talking about the victim and the, the persecutor there, uh, I was thinking about the, uh, the other role, because that's the one that I find myself the rescuer wanting to fix those Me too. enjoy helping other oh people. It's like, I can't stand to see this pain. Let me see what I can do to yeah. solve yeah. the problem, jump in and help. And so as I was reading those descriptions and really throughout the book, because you go into so much more depth on the opposite of each of those, that it was, um, it, it just helped me it really transformed my thinking, quite honestly, about how my motive may be, you know, to, to be of help. But in reality, I'm trying to fix this. I'm trying to, you know, solve something. And I, when you just said the, um, what was it, without consent? Yeah, non-consensual <laughs> non helping. Non-consensual helping. <laughs> what a phrase. What a yeah, what a phrase, because if that doesn't kind of stop a rescuer in their tracks, just to realize nobody asked you to solve this. Yeah. And so assuming that's what's needed is a is really contributing to the drama, right? Yes. And you're not alone. All of us that are in the helping professions, consultants, trainers, HR, we want to help and we study and we work and we learn and we have all these ideas and these th solutions 
that can be really, really helpful. But I think where we, where we can't cross the line is the line of human dignity and human capability and realizing that, well, and in your book, you talk about this. You talk about one of the key fundamental prerequisites for change is wanting to. And that means you're giving someone permission to influence you, permission to have ideas. And so, you know, I know that non-consensual helping is kind of a, it's kind of a jarring phrase, but I have three daughters. And so the, the phrase non-consensual meant a lot to me when they were younger and as they were growing up. I never wanted anything to happen to them without their consent. And so I'm teaching them about boundaries. I'm teaching them about permission. And, you know, normally we might think in, a, in kind of a relationship kind of a thing. But then I started thinking, you know, the same thing happens at work. I see you maybe, you know, you can't figure out something on your computer. And I come over and say, here, let me show you how to do that. And when I say, let me show you, that makes the hair go up on the back of my neck. Because what about phrases like, oh, I know you say no, but you're going to like it, or you're going to thank me later. Or, and you know, those phrases that we might say to each other in common, if my, if my daughter's boyfriend said that to her, I would want to, I want to have him arrested. Mm -hmm. So this really is about human dignity. It's about boundaries around our agency as human beings and about this idea of making choices um, mm -hmm. around our destiny. I want to come back to that boundary in a little bit, but I want to get into some of the other elements first so it'll have the right context and make sense. So we get drama. Now let's look at your definition of compassion because that's also yeah. unique. And I loved the expansion you gave to that word mm. beyond what we typically think of it. So talk about that and how you came to that. Well, thanks for noticing that. And that's that's been that's been maybe the the biggest hurdle that we have struggled to overcome from a from a branding and marketing perspective is is really trying to help people realize that compassion is so much more than what we thought. Um, but I I really believe compassion is the solution to drama because compassion humans have been given, you know, we have this dark side which is the the need to feel justified, but we also have been given compassion. It's built into us. We have a capability for it, but it's so much more than empathy. It's so much more than my heart goes out to you because I see suffering and I want to go alleviate that suffering. Um, compassion comes from the Latin root, meaning to suffer with. Calm means with, and passion means to suffer. So compassion is not about taking away the suffering. It's about suffering together. Compassion is the antidote to drama because drama is struggling against with a winner and a loser. Compassion is struggling with for a win-win. So a friend of mine said, if I buy your book and I read and I apply everything, it, life's going to be easy, right? And I said, no, <laughs> life is not going to be any easier. But here's the thing. It's going to hurt so good because the purpose of life is not for it to be easy. The purpose of life is purpose and creation and making something amazing. So compassion is how we struggle with people towards something amazing. And that's how we kind of started evolving this idea of how do we operationalize this definition so we can really do something with it and give people handles. Well, I love that distinction between struggle with and struggle against, because I, it just creates such a different picture in my mind with one versus the other. So yeah. I, I think that's an excellent way of 
illustrating the difference between the drama, because with the struggle with, it's like, I'm next to you, you know, I'm with Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. as opposed to butting heads, (laughs) struggling against where, so it's more of that we're in this together and I'm, I'm with you on this journey, which um, makes me think of something else you said, which was, and this ties in with your, your comment just now about it not being easy. You said, compassion is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> so why do you say that? Because I don't want to discourage my listeners at this point. I want them to feel yeah. like this is worth embracing. Yeah. And yet there's this awareness they need to have about what it entails. Yes. It's not for the faint of heart because it's not just about having a big heart. Sure, that's part of it. But research, brain research shows that empathy by itself triggers the pain centers of the brain. And that's significant because when we have empathy, we are feeling and taking on another person's emotions. And that's important. That's a part of human survival. But if that's all we do all the time, it wears us out because it triggers the pain centers of the brain. Compassion triggers the reward centers of the brain, actually triggers dopamine receptors and some other key receptors that give this sense of, of, of enjoyment and intrinsic reward. Um, so that's the good news, is it, is it is rewarding to do compassion because it's hard. Um, it takes courage, it takes vulnerability, it takes open-mindedness, it takes putting our ego aside, it takes truly caring about another person's experience and honoring our own boundaries at the same time. So it's multifaceted and it's, and it, and it takes work, but the rewards are worth it. Yes. I, I really, I I agree because I've experienced that. Let's um, talk about your, your three elements of this model that kind of um, counterbalances or, you know, you've got this cycle where you have the potential for drama at corners of a triangle that surround this cycle. So talk a little bit about that, because I really want my listeners to get this visual image of these steps, Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. we can look at practical applications of them. Yeah. Well, I've been, um, I'm, I'm, I'm knee deep in two of your books right now. I'm in the middle of reading them. And one of the things I so appreciate about them is you give real examples of dialogue and say, this is what it actually sounds like, you know, to talk to somebody in this way or, or to, to coach. And fascinating, maybe you already realized this, but a lot of your dialogue examples actually follow the same process that we talk about. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really excited for this. And I know, I know this is why you get it. Um, so there are three fundamental competencies for compassion, openness, resourcefulness, and persistence. And they each play a critical role in full compassion. Openness is about creating a safe place where human beings, two human beings, or a group of human beings are saying, we are intrinsically valuable, no conditions, no strings attached, and our experiences matter. Resourcefulness is about creative problem solving. This is probably most typical. Most leaders are familiar with this. Most of us non-consensual helpers, we love to problem solve. So this is really about where we get into our heads now and we start saying, what's going on? What do we need to understand? What decisions do we need to make? What resources do we have available? Um, And we reinforce each other's capability to be active agents in the problem solving. And then the third is persistence. And that's really about keeping the most important thing, the most important thing. 
And so this is about walking the talk. It's about principles. It's about purpose. It's about value. It's about boundaries. And um, they're in that order. And so we talk about these three competencies, and when we apply them in compassion, we apply them in that order with openness first, then resourcefulness, and then persistence, which is really counter to how a lot of people approach difficult situations. Yeah. Why is that order so important? What is the, the value, the imperative for, for yeah. demonstrating the openness first? I think the research is finally catching up to what a lot of us have experienced. And that is when I feel safe, when I feel seen, when I feel heard and understood, I give more, I open up, I, I, I share more of my discretionary energy in, in the workplace, on the team. And so it's critical that we start with safety. We start with a place that people feel valuable. And um, we know that to be true. The research is finally catching up with it. I just listened again to an amazing video by Simon Sinek where he talks about empathy and how critical that is. But he's actually talking about more than that. He's talking about openness and just creating a place where people, first of all, feel valued as human beings. The inclusion work that's going on now is saying the very same thing. We have to start from this fundamental place that we're all valuable and that our experiences are matter and that they're legitimate. Um, But that's not how my daughter's coaches, volleyball coaches approach coaching, they come first to persistence. And the first thing they say is, here's where you went wrong. Remember the rules. You're supposed to do this. We got to, you know, we got to, you got to toe the line. And then there's nothing wrong with that. But when you start there all the time, people start to feel beat down. They start to feel like you don't care about them. They start to feel like, what about the 99 times I did the right thing? And so I'm getting to the part in your book where you talk about focusing on the positives and poking on affirming people first. Um, so that's one of the things that's very counter is that people really aren't interested in creative problem solving until they feel heard. Um, you know, the classic phrase, I don't care how much you know until I know how much you care. And mm-hmm. this really puts, puts action to that truth. Mm-hmm. So give an example of some things that someone could say that would demonstrate openness as a, as a way yeah. to start, because yeah. it, it take it from the conceptual level to the yeah. application level. Let's start with something very practical. Um, we all are experiencing emotions all the time. We're all having things going on inside of us. One great way to establish openness is simply to disclose how I'm feeling. Not what I'm thinking. That's, that's, not, that's not what I'm talking about. Disclose how you're feeling. Maybe I'm feeling uncomfortable. And I tell you that I'm feeling uncomfortable in this conversation, or maybe I say I'm feeling uneasy about where things are going with our plan. It's just sharing how you're feeling. Um, That's one way to take the first step and say, hey, I'm going to put myself out there and be vulnerable. Um, Or I might affirm someone else's feelings and say, your feelings matter. Or, you know, thank you so much for sharing that with me. I didn't know you felt that way. Or it's okay to talk about how you're really doing. Or simply asking someone how they're feeling is a way of saying, I value and affirm you. Mm-hmm. And then empathy is the third skill that we teach, which is to say, you're not alone. Because um, you know, disclosing says, my feelings matter. Validating says, your feelings matter. But then there's a third thing which says, we're in this together emotionally. So maybe someone says, you know, I'm really anxious about this presentation. And I say, gosh, I'm with you. I remember feeling that way when I did my first presentation. I mean, have you ever been through something difficult and you wonder, does anyone, would anyone care? Does, has anyone in the world ever been through this? And you maybe take a risk to share it and they say, oh my gosh, me too. 
you're not alone. And it's just this huge weight lifted off, not because they took away your pain, but because you're not alone. Mm-hmm. That's so powerful. Yeah. So powerful. So what goes wrong when we, when we jump in with resourcefulness first? Yeah. Here's what goes wrong. It's a Friday afternoon and my wife works across the street at the chamber of commerce. And um, I just happen to be able to get off work early. And I'm thinking to myself, wouldn't it be great if she could get off early too, and we could go for a walk before dinner time, and just connect and kind of get the weekend off to an early start. That would be. I just love to spend some time with her like that. So I text her and I say, "What a time are you getting off work?" That's resourceful. I'm trying to ask for information, and she texts back and she goes, "Why?" Hmm. Anybody <laughs> experience that? And my um, immediately, I feel defensive. And I would say, what do you mean? Why? I asked you a simple question. Answer the question, right? And now we're off to the races. I'm like, what's wrong? You know, why can't you answer a simple question? And I'm having all these like mean thoughts about my wife. And then I thought, hmm, the mistake I made is I started at resourceful trying to answer a question, but I did not disclose to her my motive. I didn't disclose to her my feelings. So I said, Julie, I'm sorry, back up the bus. I was, I was, I was able to get off work early. I was feeling excited about maybe going for a walk before dinner. That's why I asked. And she wrote back and she said, oh, cool. I'd love to do that. Let me check. And she was able to get off work early. So we're going for a walk. And I asked her, I said, so why did you respond to my text by saying why? And she goes, I don't know what you wanted. Were you going to ask me to go to the store? Am I supposed to pick up something? You know, did our daughter need something? I don't know why you're asking. And so, you know, how often do we just come at someone with a question, but we don't reveal our motives. We don't reveal what's in it. We don't let them help us and we don't let them struggle with us. Mm-hmm. That's so simple good. example. Yeah, it is a good <laughs> example. And, and what brought to mind as you were talking was uh, my business partner, Paula, and I were on a trip one time. And we had been discussing how something was going to be done, what a priority was. Mm. And we got, I forget exactly what I said, but it was probably jumping in, you know, resourceful. And she took it as judgment and negative and she started getting defensive. And we were walking back to our hotel room. I'll never forget it. And I said, okay, let's stop. (laughs) Just stop walking. And let's start this conversation over again yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because of that very thing. I don't even need to remember all the details about it, but it had that same impact yeah. where she was going one way defending. And that wasn't mm-hmm. what I had intended at all, but yeah. because of how I had approached it, yeah. that was where we ended up until we both. And I think what you're really getting at here, Nate, that is so important is at least one person has to have the awareness. Yeah. Yeah, that something, absolutely. That something yeah. is not working right. Yeah. I mean, let's say the CEO is getting ready to go into a board meeting and they're feeling anxious about being able to defend the numbers from the last quarter and what the board's going to say. So they fire off an email to the, to the CFO saying, hey, will you send me, will you run those numbers again for the last quarter and send me these calculations and these calculations? So at this point, the CFO is like thinking, I've run these numbers five times for you. You know, why are you asking for them again? But it's setting up an adversarial relationship. You do as I say, or 
you push back on the CEO and say, why? But what if the CEO just said, I'm feeling anxious about my board meeting, and I really want to feel confident about those numbers. Would you be willing to run these numbers again so I have fresh ones when I go into the board meeting? And now the CFO can say, whoa, now you've given me a way to struggle with you to assist you in feeling confident in that meeting by running the numbers. And instead of me having to just comply with your request, I'm actually supporting you in being successful. Wonderful example. Yeah. Wonderful example. It just shows what little things we can do. Just that little extra effort, little extra thought of what we can say before we jump into it. So that right, pause, right. right? The the just take a moment to pause to ask, mm-hmm. what what can I do? to be more open in this moment. Now, the other thing with your model, though, it's not just, you know, oh, the open, resourceful, persistent, you close with open also. And why is that important? So it's an O-R-P-O, right? O-R-P-O, yes. And well, we've been working on a template for positive conflict for a long, long, long time. And we have practiced and practiced all different kinds of things and researched every possible combination and order of these three skills. We know they're all critical because each one plays an important role in dealing with conflict and turning it into something productive. And what we've realized is openness is so important for safety that we should start and end with it. Because when we're going to walk in and start conflict, for the purpose of creating something, we better have our ducks in a row. And one of the things is be crystal clear that we send the message first and last, that we are at the end of the day, unconditionally valuable human beings. And we're not here to hurt each other. We're not here to undermine each other. And that our motives are to uplift the value of each other. And so that's why we start and end with open. And in between, R is about creative problem solving and P is about aspiring to what's most important in this conflict. So I want to share with you how uh, practical this really is, because I was in a situation just yesterday, I had finished your book and I had this friend call me and say, I'm getting ready to go on this appointment with my spouse. We've had issues with this in the past, and I just need to know what insights you might have that would be helpful before we, we go out. And I was able to share this model with her about being open at the front end, open at the back end, because she's one that tends to jump in and with the, with the uh, persistent and setting the boundaries, they have come across as threats or ultimatums at times. Mm. And so we just took a look at that. And afterwards she came back to me. I said, how did it go? She said, great. And she described, you know, what she had said, what she had done. And I was so proud of her because she did at at this one time speak up where in the past she might not have to establish, here's what I need. Here's Mm. what's important to me Mm. and got support from this third party. And it, it was just beautiful. And I thought, man, how quickly was I able to apply that in even helping someone else, but it's also raised my awareness significantly. And so your book is just one of those that really has an impact when someone reads it with an open mind, right? 
But I want you for a moment to please um, talk about the distinction you make between setting clear boundaries and making an ultimatum, because I think a lot of people struggle with that. If they set a boundary, it's going to sound like I'm threatening Mm -hmm. or issuing an ultimatum. Great. And let's throw into the mix there also consequences. How does that all fit? Because because (laughs) sometimes people think, well, if you don't do this, then here's the consequence. And there's a fine line between having a boundary and set an ultimatum. So here's the difference. A boundary is a clear statement about what can and can't happen or what you will and won't do, or even about the consequences of behavior. Like a boundary might be that um, we allow six unexcused absences and on the seventh one, you're on a performance plan or, you know, whatever. That's that's the boundary. Um, And I can state that very clearly. And it's not about something wrong with you. It's just about this behavior leads to this consequence. But an ultimatum is when I put someone else's okayness on notice, on condition of their behavior. So true compassion separates the person from their behavior. I can love a person and I can enact a consequence both at the same time. I can say, you are okay. This behavior is not okay. And there are consequences for that and it needs to change. Um, But an ultimatum tries to put someone's worth on the line, or it tries to shift responsibility for who's responsible for what. So let's say a leader, let's say someone's late over and over and a leader has been covering for them instead of really having real conversations. And they, they're late one more time. And the leader says, you know, I'm not sure how many more times I can cover you for you. It's like, what are you saying? Are you saying that I'm going to throw you under the bus if you're late again? It's like, what kind of a, what kind of a statement is that? Or even the classic one with, um, oh, you know, the classic line, go ahead, make my day. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I tell that story in the book, but the, how often do we do that? We're like, we set the other person up. If you don't do what I think you should do, then I'm going to think less of you. I'm going to try to hurt you. I'm going to blame you. And then it's all going to be okay. Like, because you didn't do what I wanted, I can do whatever I want. Um, or a boss that says, you've left me no choice but to fire you. That is both a lie and it's completely irresponsible. It is a supervisor's decision on whether or not to fire you. So to say you've left me no choice says that I am not making decisions as a leader. But, a, but instead of an ultimatum like that, the leader would say, I am choosing to fire you because you've been late one more time. Owning it, in other words. Owning it. So ultimatums often sound like threats, like don't make me have to fire you or don't, or that's the last time I'm going to trust you, which is saying is somehow if you do it one more time, then I have license to mistreat you as a human being. And then it's going to be okay because of your behavior. And that's where we, we make it personal when it's not appropriate to do that. Mm-hmm. What you're talking about is I'm listening is really personal responsibility, mm-hmm. looking at yeah. What am I responsible for? As well as demonstrating value towards another human being. How do you deal with situations with clients? Because you you describe some, you know, times that didn't go so well with clients, as well as those that did. And they were all, you know, very powerful examples when you have found yourself in a situation with a client that really doesn't want to take 
personal responsibility, and I'm sure mm-hmm. this happens yeah. often. Yep. What do you do to show compassion and go through these steps yourself in the conversation yep. with that person? Well, I can tell you ORPO is invaluable for us. We use it every day in client relationships. And one of the things that we realized is that the best client relationships, the ones we strive for are the ones where compassion, where we are struggling together towards a common goal, where we're not the rescuer of them. They're not the persecutor of us. We're not the victim of every whim. You know, this whole idea of the customer is always right is is BS. The customer is sometimes delusional and irresponsible and has no idea what they want or or doesn't says they want to do something, but they don't really. So we have those conversations. We have those conversations. And sometimes we're willing to part ways if we're not willing to both both be responsible for our part in 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 the success of this relationship. I remember that one example where your partner was in a training class and had somebody trying to undermine it mm-hmm. from day one. And I think you said this was the first time that yeah. one of you had actually applied this. And if you could just paraphrase a little bit, just again, to give an example for my listeners, what are the kinds of things that she said that made a difference with this person's behavior? Yeah, this person was actively trying to sabotage the training. They were they didn't want to be there. They they saw what was coming as a threat to their drama, threat to their power. And so they just tried to keep eroding it. And they even got to the point of, you know, side conversations directly questioning the the integrity of the trainer. Um, and finally, the trainer just said, here's what she said. She said something like, I'm really confused and I'm feeling really uncomfortable. Um, that's what she said. And she said, so here's what I've been trying to do at Resourceful. She shared information. Here's what I've been trying to do. Here's why we're here. And there are other people that are trying to learn. And then she went to persistence. She said, here's the boundary. I am responsible for creating a healthy learning environment. Everyone here is responsible to learn. If you don't want to be part of that, that's okay. And you don't get to be part of this group. You, you can't have it both ways, and it is your free choice on whether you want to participate or not. But if you choose to participate further, this is what I want from you. And, she, and then she finished it open and said, how are you experiencing this whole situation? And it stopped him dead in his tracks because in a way there was nowhere for him to hide, but also there was no drama, no attacking, no blaming. He was treated with dignity, but also held accountable. Jamie said, it's my job to create a good learning experience. It's your job to to do your part. This isn't a battle between you and I. And he actually apologized to the group and modified his behavior instantly and started to engage. Doesn't always turn out that well, but it certainly is an example where if it would have gone continued, the whole thing would have been a train wreck um, for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think, you know, there's so many takeaways to me from that example because thinking about having been a trainer myself and dealing with someone there, you just keep hoping other people will, you know, get them to uh, get back on track. But of course, somebody that's that intent on sabotaging isn't going to be influenced by yeah. other by peer pressure. <clears throat> so this this whole thing of 
of really uh, honoring that person's dignity and, and holding on to that important aspect. Because what I have seen happen is if someone loses their cool as the leader in the group, the trainer, the other people then start to rally around that person because oh, yeah. now they're feeling sorry for them having gotten put down or embarrassed by this person who's in this instructor role. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, you know, one of the greatest permissions I ever gave myself, I didn't invent this permission. It was given to me by someone else is it's okay to want others to learn and grow without expecting them to. Mm. Mm -hmm. And wanting someone to learn and grow means I'm going to give it everything I've got. Expecting them to learn and grow means if they don't, somebody's not okay. And nobody deserves that. I don't deserve it as a trainer to have that pressure on myself. They don't deserve it as a learner to somehow have their okayness dependent on them loving my stuff and benefiting from my training. Because whether you learn and grow or not, you are okay and I'm okay. Um, and so that frees everybody to be able to just give it whatever they're willing to give at that moment. Mm -hmm. I think that's such a great place for us to kind of... Um kind of bring things to conclusion, because that's really the ultimate underlying piece with attitude towards compassion and struggling with someone is acknowledging I'm okay, you're okay, instead of making the judgment that one of us is falling short in some yeah. way in yeah. our humanness. And so do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share, Nate, with my audience around how they can personally look at bringing more compassion to their lives, whether it's at work or at home. I do. I do. And this is a new development since we wrote the book and we have discovered what's called the compassion mindset. We've discovered a mindset, which is made up of three switches. And when they're turned on, it works, we can do it. And when they're not, it doesn't. And it's, it's like magic. And the three switches are value, capability, and responsibility humans are valuable. And when that switch is turned on, we treat people as if they are innately valuable. The second switch is the switch of capability. And when it's turned on, we treat people as if they're capable. So we involve them. We ask more of them. We train them. We mentor, we coach, we get curious. And the third switch is the switch of responsibility, which means that we are all hundred percent responsible for our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And no matter what happened before, I get to choose what I'm going to do next. And so I just want to, I invite people to ask if, what would you say or do next? If you truly believed that we were all valuable, capable, and responsible, might be surprised how it would change what you say next. Oh, that is beautiful. Thank you. What a great gift. I love that. I firmly believe all three of those things are so important and you're right. There's another opportunity to pause before we respond in a given mm -hmm. situation to hold that. Yeah. And of course, I love your use of the word mindset, because you know, in our book on the communication skills, we have a moment to recognize when you can use the skill and the yeah. mindset you need to bring to it. So Nate, we really are in sync in so many mm -hmm. ways. Mm -hmm. I want you to know how much I admire the work that you're doing and the, the really the courage you've had to bring it forth because there's some controversy uh, built into what you are, 
you know, prescribing and recommending to organizations. And you have just persisted in, you know, in continuing to be resourceful. I love using your own words, but you've been listening in an open way to clients and experimenting to see what works. And so this model that you've created, and I love the fact that you're continuously enhancing it is very powerful and profound. And I really want to recommend all of my listeners pick up a copy of this wonderful book, Mm -hmm. Conflict Without Casualties. And I would love to um, have you describe how people can connect with you, learn more about your services, because I'm guessing some of them Mm -hmm. are going, whoa, how does he do what he he does? And, um, And where they can get copies of your books. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, our website, next-element.com, is where you can find everything and connect with us. And um, we, we are a team. I'm, I'm just representing our team. We also have a global network of about 150 certified trainers that are teaching this methodology in 11 countries around the world. So we train, we coach, we certify people, and then give and then put in their hands really compelling curriculum where they can go teach it to others because we want, we can't get compassion into every workplace by ourselves. And so um, would love to connect with you. Uh, Subscribe to my blog, listen to the podcast. We're always trying to give away everything we can to help people put this into practice in their lives. Yes. Do, do uh, listen to Nate's wonderful podcast is called On Compassion with Dr. Nate. And you recently interviewed one of my very favorite guests, that I've had on my podcast, David Katz with Plastic Bank. So yeah. uh, you bring on many different wonderful people with great insights around this whole topic. So thank you again, Nate. I will look forward to having you back to discuss your other book, which I happen to have right here, seeing All right. through. Yeah. And uh, we will schedule another time to have that conversation. Thank you. You are so welcome. Thank you for being part of our third strategy in our whole um, strategic plan, which is to partner with others to elevate and amplify the message of compassion. And you're part of that. And we are all barking up the same tree. Yes, we are. Thank you. I love being a partner with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to the Strong for Performance podcast. Now head over to growstrongleaders.com slash free and grab our ebook, Listen Like a Pro. You'll find out how to connect on a deeper level with the people who matter to you. And while you're there, check out our two books, Connect With Your Team and Peer Coaching Made Simple. Until next time, I'm Meredith Bell.